The sermon text this morning is going to be Matthew 26, 20 through 46. Uh, Join us on page 832 in the Pew Bibles. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And when Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after him I am raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you sober us now before this sobering account of your son's courage 
and faithfulness to you and for his church. Would you grant that we would watch and pray even as we preach and as we sit under the preached word that we might not enter into temptation. And we pray that you would take these minutes now and you would consecrate them as a, as a beautiful canvas and that on that canvas now you would take not the lofty speech or wisdom of men, not plausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God so that the faith of your people would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on your power. And we pray, Father, that you would be pleased even this day in these minutes to join many to Jesus Christ to bring them out of darkness under the ministry, through the ministry of your word on this day and to bring them into the kingdom of your marvelous light by joining them to the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, a Christian's life's work, the, wor- the life's work of a Christian is to be taking the measure of the cross over and over and over and over again. And it's a labor of love, isn't it? Uh, We spend the entire Christian life uh, walking the breadth of the cross and surveying the length of the cross and plumbing the depths of the cross and scaling the heights of the cross. And this is exactly what we see uh, everyone else in the New Testament modeling for us, right? Paul, even at the end of his ministry, is saying it is a trustworthy statement that deserves our full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's measuring the cross there. And in Galatians, earlier in his ministry, he he says, I have been crucified with Christ. He's taking the measure of the cross, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. See, he's measuring the cross at both ends of his public ministry as an apostle. And that's really the path for all of us as well. And so, Lord willing, over the next several weeks, what we're going to, we're going to start it this morning and and we're going to continue it the next. Uh, two weeks uh, after, after today, Lord willing, we're going to be taking the measure of the cross. And uh, you're saying to yourself, we do that every week. Uh, and, and yes, that's right, I hope. Uh, but particularly, we're going to be using three cups to measure the cross. Three cups that Jesus uh, speaks about in our passage. I don't know if you noticed that, but there are three cups. And we measure his cross and the gospel We can measure the cross and uh, his gospel according to those three cups. What are the three cups? Well, the first one we're going to look at today is the cup that Jesus received from his Father on the cross. And we're we're going to be looking at the Gethsemane portion of our passage. And then next week, we're going to look at the cup that we receive from Jesus. And that's the cup he discusses in 26 through 28 verses. And then 
on March 1st, we're going to look at the cup that we will share with Jesus. And that's the cup that he mentions uh, by implication in verse 29. And so as we do that, as we do that, friends, what should be happening in each of our lives is that we should be, as we look at each of these cups, we should be asking of ourselves and questioning and examining ourselves to see whether we have a cross that's not the cross. Whether what we're dealing with or what we think we're dealing with is some unreasonable facsimile of the only cross there actually is. And in particular this morning, as we look at the cross that Jesus, excuse me, the cup that Jesus received from his Father on the cross, the cup of God's wrath, we're going to be asking whether the cross we have, the cross we believe in, is a wrathless cross. And I pray that it wouldn't be because, because the eternity literally weighs in the balance. Friends, a wrathless cross is a worthless cross. And unless we have a cross, unless we believe in the cross that the Bible presents to us as the only means for resolving the wrath of God against sinners, then we have nothing. And so this morning I want to linger with you over that and look at three aspects of God's wrath uh, through the lens of this cross. And the first is the cross uh, the, through the lens of this cup. And the first is the cross and the reality of God's wrath. Our second uh, heading will be the cross and the beauty of God's wrath. And then finally, the cross and the finality of God's wrath. So let's look first at the cross and the reality of God's wrath. Do you notice, uh, particularly if, you, if we're going to be focusing on verses 36 through 46, when our Lord is in Gethsemane? And you know, we've all had the experience of being with somebody who sees something before we do, right? You know what I'm talking about. You, you know, we might have our back to something, and then we're talking to this person, and we can tell from their facial expression, they, they see something either we haven't yet or we can't yet, and we can tell from their facial expression whether what is approaching is either a wonder or a terror. We all have had that experience. And that's exactly what's going on in the garden here. Jesus sees something, and his demeanor changes. And it, it changes in a way he is transfigured, as it were, again, but in a way very different from what we saw in chapter 17, right? There, he takes his, his, the same three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain, Matthew says, and on the top of that mountain, a cloud descends. And Jesus is transfigured. He's glorious. It's a vision of light. And the cloud surrounds all four of them. And they hear the Father's voice saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to me. And now we're looking at a very... Well, and when the disciples hear that, they fall on their faces. And now we're in a very different situation. We're not on the top of a mountain we're in a garden, and there is a cloud, but Jesus is the only one who enters it, 
and he is the only one who falls on his face. Look at verse 37. I mean, this is shocking. If you've been reading the gospel up to now, we have never seen Jesus like this before. This is unprecedented. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That's a a window the Holy Spirit gives us into Jesus' interior experience. And then what is what is happening inside, he then verbalizes in verse 38 for his disciples, listen to this. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now friends, what could possibly bring him to that point? The word that's used is very strong to describe Jesus' sorrow. The, the word that the ESV renders very sorrowful carries the sense of being enveloped in grief and sorrow, surrounded by it. I mean, you have to get the feeling of this. This is not some minor sorrow or grief. This is the kind of dread that, that feels like it's going to drown you. This is the kind of sorrow that makes it feel like it's suffocating you. It's so dark and it's so deep that there's only one place he can go with it, to his father. And that's what he does in verse 39, starting in verse 39. And you can see even more of his grief and his dread through the way that he now conducts himself before his father. Look at his posture. He falls on his face, verse 39, right? And going a little farther. See, the way the narrative describes it is he keeps... He keeps moving away. First, he moves away from the 11 disciples with just the three. And then he moves away from those three. He goes farther on, right away from them, falls on his face to pray. He is not gently, calmly kneeling to pray. He is prone on the ground. Now, that should tell us something. Is that an overreaction to what he's facing? Or is it the perfect reaction to what he's facing? And you have to make an interpretive decision. You know which way I vote. Right? His posture. This is a physical picture. I mean, Jesus prone on the ground. You have not seen that anywhere else in the Gospels. You you have not seen that. The only time you ever see somebody on their face is when somebody comes before Jesus or the demons bow, the demon-possessed people bow before Jesus on their face. But we've never seen Jesus on his face. His posture conveys so much about his grief and his dread. What is it that is throwing him to to the ground on his face? And then there's his intensity. We miss this, I think, and we should not miss it. We should be more careful readers than we are. Do you notice the first time he comes to the disciples in verse 40, after his first season of prayer, do you see what he says to Peter? So you could not watch with me one hour? And I think the very clear implication of that is that in that first season of prayer, he has been praying for an hour. Verse 
So there is deep grief and deep dread. Now, before I I get further into what it is that is the reason for his grief, I want to make sure that I pause here to emphasize something so shockingly wonderful about what the Bible is teaching us about Jesus Christ. Something so glorious it, uh, that, we, that comes into view through, this grief, through his grief and dread. Something that is so utterly magnificent that takes us to the very heart of what Christianity is about and what the gospel presents to us. You know, Chris, right now we see that the Bible does not teach some kind of Clark Kent incarnation. Here is the Son of God incarnate. Yes, He is God incarnate, right? We saw this from chapter 1. The theme, the, the theme verse of Matthew is, You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And the name Jesus means either Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Both of them work. And yes, he is God incarnate, but he is God incarnate. He is, he, the way he achieves his mission is by being Emmanuel, being God with us, and with us to such a degree that he shares our flesh. And he shares our feelings. And he is not a robot. This shows us, friends, that all grief is not sin. That all dread is not sin. That all fear is not sin. And it shows us, my friends, that Jesus is a man. He is human. It would be inhuman to face the prospect of the cross and not be broken. He would be a robot. He would be like Clark Kent. Now, I know you all love Clark Kent. But don't let Clark... Do you, do you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> don't let Clark Kent be the way you think about Jesus. Clark can't look like a human being. But he had none of the weaknesses of human beings. He had none of the vulnerabilities of human beings. Oh, friends, you've got to get this. Because if if Jesus Christ, if the high priest who has passed through the heavens and who appears in the presence of God for us, and who always lives to make intercession for us, if the high priest who did that could not have wounds in his body, then he could not be our high priest. He could not be our substitute. He would not be human. He would look human, but he would not be human. And because he would not be human, he could not satisfy any of the obligations of humanity to God. He could not fulfill any obligation of humanity to God. He would not be qualified to be a true and full substitute for human beings. But Jesus is a man. He is no superman. He is is a man. He is one of us. He is one of us. 
and everything depends on that. There is no forgiveness unless he is one of us. There is no meaningful priestly ministry for us unless he is one of us. There is no true sympathy unless he is one of us. There is no removal of the curse of God's wrath against humans unless he is one of us. And friends, hallelujah, he is. This is simultaneously the most comforting and terrifying thing you could ever hear. It is comforting because it means that his suffering is neither a sham nor a show, and so he can offer true sympathy. And it is also terrifying because it means that you cannot dismiss him. You and I can dismiss Clark Kent. We, we see him leap over a building in a single bound. We say, well, I can't do that. You don't ever get to dismiss Jesus Christ like that. You don't ever get to exclude him from your life as the standard or the, or the hope because he's irrelevant or because he's ignorant of what you really go through or because he's impotent. And those very things that, the very, those things that, that make Jesus so comforting also make him terrifying. So what is it? I've already hinted. I can't, I'm lousy at keeping a secret. So. so what is it that Jesus sees in the garden? Well, he sees a cup. This is the reason he's filled with grief and dread. He sees a cup, and this cup is the focus of his praying. It is the source of his grief and dread, and it's the heart of his triumph there in the garden, my friends. Look at verse 39. That's where it starts. My father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he essentially repeats the same themes. There's some, there's some progress. There's an intensification that I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but, but that's what he, that's the refrain. That's the focus of his praying again in verse 42 and again in verse 44 in the third season of his praying. You notice in verse 42... Uh, what, what happens is, so, so, so look at verse 39. Let's compare verse 39 and verse 42. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, he's not asking for something that's contrary to God's will. He is asking what is possible, right? And then notice how he ends. He is committed to doing his father's will and to preferring. This is important to see. Preferring his father's will to his own. But even more than that, more intensively and extensively embracing and adopting his father's will as his own. That's what's going on. You know, you know I was thinking about this. The way temptation works in my life is the more I'm tempted, it seems like the weaker I get. Maybe you've read about people like that. In, in Jesus' life, the more he's tempted, the stronger he gets. The more he is holding fast to his Father's will. And you'll notice in verse 42 what he says. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, I want to focus for a minute on that phrase, your will be done. Because the way we tend to read that is, 
is passively. In other words, I'm submitting to your will being done upon me. That's exactly the opposite of what that is actually conveying. He is, he is declaring that in, a, in an active sense. And you know that because of the word drink. So in other words, you say, well, does that distinction matter? Yeah, it does matter. Here's why it matters. Jesus is not simply saying, presenting himself passively and saying, your will, Father, be done upon me. Okay? Now, that would be, that would be a glorious thing if he would submit to it. If, if we would understand the cross in terms of God's will being done upon Jesus. But you know, if that's the only way we understand it, then we're going to have a question. How much of Jesus' heart was there in the cross? How much work was he doing? Was he passive or active there? Was he just a victim or was he the victor? Was the cross the place where he was run over? Or was the cross the chariot he drove to his victory? And friends, the cross is the chariot Jesus drove to his triumph. You know that because of what he says. If this, if this cannot pass unless I, notice the language, unless I drink it, not have it shoved down my throat, unless I take the cup, unless I take all the contents that are in the cup and I bring them into myself, unless I own the contents of that cup as my own, unless I empty the cup of its contents by filling myself with its contents in that active sense, that's how your will is going to be done. The cup is full of something. And Jesus is going to do his Father's will by owning those contents as his own. All we do together is learn how to read our Bible slowly, my friends. The Father intends that Jesus will take full ownership of the contents of that cup. That he swallow them. That he take them fully into himself. That he empty that cup by filling himself, not the passive being filled, with all of its contents, accepting and transferring all of its contents to himself. That's what he does. So what exactly is that cup? Well, when Jesus refers to this cup, he's tapping into a very deep vein of Old Testament symbolism. It runs throughout the entire Old Testament. And, and here again, it's going to come up later this morning, the, the, you know, Jesus is so interesting to me because Jesus is the greatest subject of the Old Testament. He is the greatest subject. He is the theme of the Old Testament, but he is also its greatest student. And when he invokes this image of the cup, he is tapping down into, into this deep vein of Old Testament revelation about a symbol of God's wrath and hatred against sin. And God's wrath... I keep using that term. Let me just make sure I define it. God's wrath 
is his holy opposition toward and hatred of all that is evil and wicked. It is the beauty of his holiness acting out its jealousy against all threats and rebels against his holiness. And so, if you look at the Old Testament at least 15 times, and hold your breath, we're only going to look at one, but at least 15 times this image is used as a, as a symbol of God's wrath and hatred towards sin and evil. So I want to look at just one with you this morning, and then you can trace this out. You have concordances, you can trace this out. Let's look at Psalm 75. This is the, the simplest one, I think, to make the point. And that's on page 487 in your pew Bible. Psalm 75. It's an interesting image. And, it, and, it, and it's very prominent in the book of Revelation as well. So if you, if you look at verse 75, verse 7, is, this is a psalm where, among other things, God's role as the judge of all the earth is, is being celebrated. And if you look at verse 7, it says, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now, there's several things I want you to notice about that. Notice that the cup is linked with God's judgment. It's linked, it's full of wine, and we'll think about the symbolism, the imagery of wine here in a minute, but this, this cup is in the hand of the Lord. In his capacity as judge, he dispenses it to all the wicked of the earth. Do you see that? It's inescapable. It's comprehensive. It doesn't just apply to some pe- some people in some places of the earth, but all the wicked of the earth. And they will drain it down to its dregs. They're not going to sip it. They're not going to taste it. They're not going to have a choice in the matter. They are going to take all of its contents. They're going to drain it down to its dregs. And this shows up again uh, in Jeremiah 25. It shows up in Isaiah 51. It shows up particularly in Revelation 14, where John speaks of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So why would wine, this is a very interesting image, why would wine be an image of God's wrath? Well, think about it. A wine takes a long time to make. It takes time to make wine. And God's, God is slow to anger. He's very patient. His, outbur- his anger is never an outburst in, in Scripture. It, this is at the heart of what it means to be the Lord. His glory, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He is slow to anger. And so his wrath, right, is not just some kind of uh, unexpected outburst. He will release the vintage of his wrath according to his schedule, right? His time when it's ready and his apparent slowness 
in dispensing his wrath is not indifferent. So many people mistakenly assume that because their lives are going well, they are not, the wrath of God doesn't remain on them. When instead, right, his slowness is a kindness. His slowness to anger is not approval of your conduct. It's a celebration of his glory in being slow to anger. It's a kindness that's meant to open up an opportunity for you to repent and turn and flee from the wrath to come. That's what it is. It's not his approval. So wrath, his wrath is a long time in the making. It's also like wine based on multiple provocations. How do you make wine? Well, you take a bunch of individual grapes and you crush them and you break them over and over and over again and the juice comes out. You have to break, you have to crush a lot of grapes to produce that vintage. And in the same way, right, God's wrath is based upon multiple provocations. And then finally, it's power like wine cannot be controlled by men. You drink wine, you lose the ability to control yourself. You're not in charge anymore. And you will be mastered by the wine that you consume, just as God's wrath will master everyone who does not have refuge in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what Jesus saw in the garden. If you go back with me to Matthew 26 now. That's what Jesus saw in the garden. That's what he chose with fear and trembling in the garden to receive from and empty for his father on the cross the cup of his father's wrath. So when Jesus, my friends, looked forward to the cross and he saw a story there. And that story that he saw from the garden, in it, uh, the story that he saw about the cross was, was so dark and so grievous. And it was so, uh, it was so deep in its darkness. And, and friends, it was, it, was, it was so much it was so much deeper and darker than all the things that we would tend to associate with it. The story that Jesus saw at the cross, my friends, was deeper and darker than his betrayal by one of his disciples. It was deeper and darker than his rejection by the crowd so that Barabbas, a murderer, could go free. The story that Jesus saw was deeper and darker and more grievous than his unjust accusation by the Jewish leaders and his unjust condemnation by the Roman authorities. The story about the, uh, about the cross that Jesus saw from the garden and that nearly suffocated him with grief and sadness was deeper and darker, right, than, than all of his public shaming and mockery. He was naked on the cross. And the people who walked by reviled him. And the Roman soldiers mocked him. And the story that Jesus saw was deeper and darker than that. Deeper and darker than the blows to his face. Deeper and darker than the crown of thorns pushed down on his head. Deeper and darker than the spikes being driven through his hands and his feet. Because all those things... were what men could do. That's just what men could do. And that's not why 
He was on his face. He was on his face because of what God would do on the cross. He was on his face because of what his father would do on the cross. He was the Old Testament's best student. He knew that his father had said in Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd. And he knew he was that shepherd. He knew that the father whom he had always pleased Right, John 8, 29, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. He knew from Isaiah 53 that that Father whom he had always pleased would be pleased to crush him there if he would make himself a guilt offering. Friends, that's what Jesus knew would happen to him on the cross. Way, way darker, way more grievous than all of the bleeding and all of the the violence and abuse that he would be on the receiving end of from men. It was what God, his Father, would do with the cross. And it was what he himself would do on the cross, right? Isaiah 53, 12 says he poured out his soul to death. He poured himself out. It's active, right? As he is drinking the cup of wrath, as he is draining it down to its dregs, he is pouring his own soul out to death. He has made sin on that cross. That's what he would do. He would be made the curse so that his people might be freed from the curse. This is what he would do. He who has spent his entire ministry warning people about the the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He who is the light of the world knew that on the cross he was going there. So that raises a question. Do we see what God sees about his son's cross? Do we see what Jesus sees from the garden about his cross? Oh, what wondrous love. Oh, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. Is that your song? Oh, I pray that it is. The reality of God's wrath, Jesus is its best and most reliable judge. Whoever's phone that is, would you turn off those notifications? It's distracting to me. Thank you. So our second point is the cross and the beauty of God's wrath. Now, I know you didn't expect me to say that. And here's why I'm saying it. Because the wrath of God is not only real, but it is beautiful. And it's beautiful for two reasons. 
that we need to own. First, because it reveals that God himself is beautiful. And secondly, because it is, it, it is tied to God's goal for his wrath, which is to bring into being a, the beautiful future he has planned for his people. So John Owen, I know you never expected me to say this, but John Owen is right. Again, right? He's right again. He that hath slight views of sin had never great thoughts of God. If you have a low view of sin, you necessarily have a low view of God. Why? Because sin, by its very nature, is an offense against God. And you will only weigh sin as heavy as you weigh God. So the scale by which you weigh sin is the scale in its gravity is the scale by which you weigh the gravity of God. Now there's a corollary. I wish John Owen had a blog so I could, so I could like post this and he, I'm sure he would approve of it. Maybe I'd tweet it. Perish the thought. The corollary that I have in mind is this, that he or she who has slight thoughts about the wrath of God has never had great thoughts about the beauty of God. Why do I say that? Because God's wrath is his settled, personal opposition to all that is evil and wicked and wrong. It is, God's wrath is a, an aspect, a facet of his moral perfection. And as such, his beauty. God is morally beautiful. The God of the Bible is morally beautiful. He's beautiful because he's pure. He's beautiful because he's holy. His loveliness is beautiful. Right? His hatreds, what he hates, are at the heart of what makes him lovely. You understand that at a human level. And I'm just saying that the Bible teaches us that we should understand it at the divine level. His hatreds define his loveliness just as much as his loves. God's moral beauty is shown in the outpouring of his wrath upon his son at Calvary. When the Apostle John, who's been a Christian by this point for probably 60 years, wants to summarize at the beginning of 1 John the whole ministry and mission of Jesus. He does it in the most breathtaking way in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message. We, now, now, would you summarize the gospel this way? This is the message we have heard from him or received from him and which we proclaim to you. Sounds like he's ramping up, doesn't it? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So the good news of the gospel, my friends, according to the Apostle John, is inseparable from God's moral beauty. And that makes perfect sense to us because we know Romans 1. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How is it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The moral perfection of God is revealed. The moral goodness of God is revealed. And what's amazing is that that moral perfection is then put in the service in, through Jesus Christ of rescuing sinners. Oh. So friends, God is beautiful. And his wrath proves it and demonstrates it. The fact that there is a cup of wrath, my friends. You want a judge of the earth. Right? We all dream of a beautiful future. We all dream of a beautiful future. Every story we read, every movie we watch, every, every show we watch. You know what? God is the hero He's the hero that we long for, that our hearts have always longed for in every story that we read. His, his silhouette is the one that we've seen, that we've followed. His shadow is the one we've traced. His, the echo of his voice is the, is the thing that we follow, that we long for in every story that we read. He is the standard, right? By which he is why. He is why, my friends, we don't simply long for a good ending, but for the right one. And why, in fact, our definition of a good ending is the right ending. It's because of God's moral perfection. It's because you and I have been made in the image of God. And so we're drawn to stories. We're drawn to to figures who resemble him. He is the great hero that our hearts have always longed for. His morally perfect beauty. He is the standard to which our hearts appeal every time we are confronted with injustice and wrong in the world. Our ability to say that is wrong his, is a fruit of his moral perfection. It's not a fruit of the Big Bang. It's God's moral beauty. We are, we are voicing the echo of his moral beauty. We are bearing witness to what our consciences know. We all dream of that beautiful future, not just for ourselves, but for the world itself. We, we're not content simply. If you notice, we're, we... we we oppose injustice. We don't like it. But we're not content simply to have injustice ended. We want it replaced with justice. We don't, we don't want injustice to cease. That's not good enough for us. We want injustice to be answered by justice. We want human suffering and human misery to end. We want that. But we want more than that, don't we? We want human suffering and human misery not simply to be relieved and to end, but to be replaced with human flourishing and prosperity. That's what we deeply want. And you know what? God wants those same things too. And the cross is proof of it. But the cross is proof of much, much more, my friends. 
Because at the cross, God is not simply demonstrating his desire that all things be made right, but that through the wrath-propitiating, wrath-exhausting, wrath-absorbing, substitutionary death of his son, he is already bringing that beautiful future into the present. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus on the cross displays the beauty of God because the goal of that wrath, what that wrath is aimed at, is the cause of all human misery, the cause of all human suffering, the cause of all injustice, the cause of everything that is wrong. The wrath of God is beautiful because it is aimed at sin, which is the cause of every suffering you want relieved, every aspect of the misery that you want to be replaced with prosperity. It is aimed at the cause of every injustice that outrages you. God wants it more than you. And the cross and God's wrath being poured out on the cross proves not that our dreams of a beautiful future for ourselves and the world are in vain. No, quite the contrary. What God is proving uh, with his cross and the outpouring of his wrath on the cross is that our dreams for those things are way too small. Because what God is doing, my friends, through Jesus' death that bore our wrath is he is renovating the cosmos He is renovating the entire cosmos so that it will be a place where only righteousness dwells, the Apostle Peter says, and where God will dwell with his people. He will be the dwelling place of his people for all eternity. That's why the wrath of God is beautiful, because it is his servant in achieving that ultimate end, and we should love his wrath for that reason. And then finally, the cross and the finality of God's wrath. There's an urgent word here for both uh, Christians and non-Christians. So first for Christians, and my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, the cross uh, this morning, it stands as, uh, as testimony. It's an exhibit, right? God's testimony to you from the cross. And God can never lie, right? Titus 1-2. He never lies. And so he's testifying from the cross of his son, my friends, that indeed it is finished. You know what Jesus does right before he says that in John 19? He tastes the sour wine given to him on the sponge. And he uses his last breath to announce it is finished. And he's not exaggerating. He's not using symbolic language. What he's doing is saying, I have, I have absorbed the wrath of God. And so for you who are in Christ this morning, it is finished. God's wrath against you because of your sins against him is over. It's over. Do you believe that? 
It is over. It has been averted. It has been satisfied. It has been propitiated. Not by your suffering, not by your obedience, but by Jesus' obedience to the point of death, my friends. Jesus emptied the cup. He kept the promise of his name. He will save his people from their sins, and he did. Oh, what wondrous love is this. So my Christian brothers and sisters, I need to tell you some things. Number one, the cup of God's wrath against you is empty because Jesus Christ has emptied it for you. He has drained it by drinking it down to its final dregs. He has emptied it by filling himself with its contents. He has taken away from you and everyone else all ownership of its contents. You do not have title to the wrath of God against your sin. Jesus bought that title with his blood. He owned it and he exhausted it on the cross. You are not getting it back. And I say that with such force because we do not live lives of joy as we should. Joy before God. And when Jesus emptied that cup, you know, he filled it with something else. He filled it with promises. He took the wrath out of it. And when he took the wrath out of it, he filled it with promises. Promises like Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no... If you could see the cup of God's wrath, it would have no wrath in it. It would just be filled up with promises. And you would see, you would see like Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. And friends, what Jesus has emptied, you cannot fill. And what he has filled that cup with, you cannot empty out of it. And if you feel or live as though you could, let me assure you that you are sitting under a false gospel that you are preaching to yourself and you need to repent of your false gospel preaching to yourself and you need to flee from your own false teaching and you need to fly to the one who has promised you at the price of his blood, it is finished. And now for our non-Christian friends. For you, the most urgent thing I have to say this morning is that it is unfinished. For you, the wrath of God is unfinished. Listen to how Jesus describes this in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son 
In other words, does not believe in the Son, does not respond in repentance and faith to Jesus' summons, which he is doing this morning. You are under the summons of the reigning Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And unless you obey that summons to come to him, this is what Jesus says is true about you. The wrath of God remains on him. And it can be only be removed in one way. There is only one person in the universe who can remove the wrath of God from you. That means, that means you know, when I, when I read as a newer Christian, when I read John 3.36, I was shocked because what I realized it was saying is that the entire life that I had lived as a non-Christian, the wrath of God was already on me. <clears throat> and I want you to realize that this morning. Not to mock you, not to taunt you, but to plead with you for your eternal welfare and for the glory of God because only Jesus can remove that wrath. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he does it by personally absorbing and exhausting the curse due the world because of its sin against God. And unless you take shelter in him, the wrath of God remains on you. I don't know what keeps you up at night, but that should. I don't know what fills your mind with terror and grief, but that should. And if you don't feel it, don't assume that it's not real. Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, you know, this looks like an overreaction. Friend, let me warn you that Jesus' reaction in the garden to the wrath of God is not an overreaction. It's a perfect reaction. His facial expression is not hyperbolic. His dread is not an exaggeration. He is perfectly calibrated, precisely calibrated in his reaction to the prospect of the wrath of God. For he, better than anyone else, knows the truth about who God is and who man is. And he knows, better than anyone else, what the nature of the collision at Calvary will be. You say, well, you know, my life, my life's going pretty well. The wrath of God, I don't feel the wrath of God. I don't feel anything remotely like that. Well, let me answer that with a story from my own life, if I can, in closing. So, some of you know I got a road bike last summer, and so I started to ride this thing. And uh, a couple weeks ago, and I know I actually exercised. Okay, just hold your breath for a moment. A couple weeks ago, I decided to buy a little GPS computer to put on my bike so I would... I would uh, have something that would show me my speed, such as it is, and my heart rate, and, uh, and, and the distance I ride. And the second time I used this thing, it's really cool, actually, but the second time I used this thing, I came in to hook it, sync it up to my computer, and I was sitting at my dining room table with my computer, and I was motionless, and I looked at this thing, and it showed me moving. It said I was going like 0.3 miles an hour. And I was outraged because I'd spent a pretty penny on this thing. So I, you know, get the instruction manual. Okay, Garmin, here you go, buddy. 
So I called Garmin up and I started to explain to the guy. He was very nice. He could tell I was a basket case. And I said to the guy, hey, this thing says I'm moving, but I know, I know I'm not moving. And there was a pause. And then he said, well, we actually get this question a lot. You actually are moving. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the earth's rotating, isn't it? No, no, this is really important. He said, the earth's rotating, isn't it? And I said, yes. And he said, well, the the GPS satellites that your little computer that's about an inch and a half square is connected to, your, your computer is registering that movement of the earth. And I said, Oh, I'm like, I'm the, I'm, I'm a pastronomer. I mean, I, you have to give me an astron. I have to call some guy in Colorado who's half my age to get an astronomy lesson. I hung my head in shame. And then I sat there after I hung up, I sat there at my table and I started to realize, I started to think, I thought, doesn't feel like the earth is rotating but you know it is and it's rotating because of the sun's gravitational pull on it and and our sun and the entire solar system we're in is moving because of the gravitational pull at the center of our galaxy the milky way and our galaxy the milky way which has a hundred billion suns at least in it is moving because of the gravitational pull of uh, the center of our local cluster of galaxies. And our local cluster of galaxies, billions upon billions upon hundreds of billions of galaxies, are all moving together in response to the gravitational pull of the super cluster of galaxies that we're in. And I'm sitting there at my dining room table, and I don't feel any of it, and yet it's true. So when you tell me that you don't feel the wrath of God remaining on you, I say, so what? Don't trust your feelings. Trust Jesus' feelings in the garden. He sees what you don't. There's something so much more powerful and significant as a force impinging upon your life at this time than gravity, my friends. There is a larger story that your life is embedded in, and it is the story of God's glory in the universe. And unless you are in Christ, you are on the wrong side of that glory. And God in his mercy has brought you here this morning so that you would be told the truth and you would hear it and you would be summoned to trust Jesus' feelings, Jesus' estimate, Jesus' response and all to the wrath of God and ultimately his work in bearing the wrath of God for people so that you would have the opportunity, God brought you here, so that you would have the opportunity, regardless of your feelings, to cast off 
to repent of trusting your feelings as the measure of the center of the universe, to see the folly of it, to flee the peril of it, and to rest in Christ alone, who alone knows what the center of the universe is, and it's God. So I urge you, I plead with you in Christ's name to flee the wrath of God to come by resting in and entrusting yourself without delay into the one who bore that wrath for his people and that you would do it today as long as it is still called today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for the fullness of Jesus' work, and I pray now for those who are wrestling with these truths that you would bring them safely and fully and without delay into your Son, that you would draw them now to your Son. And I pray in Jesus' name.